Well, I have a uh, question for you. Do you know him? This is actually a question that comes out of a poem that became a very famous sermon. We've actually used the sermon here at Temple. It's, uh, That's My King, by a gentleman, uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge. And the S.M. stands for Shadrach, Meshach. Uh, and it's a wonderful name. I, know it's like, I love that name. It's like diving into Scripture with your very name, what you're called. Um, he actually spoke this sermon, which was not called, That's My King. The sermon was actually entitled, Amen. And he used this poem that he had written, That's My King, as part of his sermon. Now, I'll give you a heads up right now. I will not be speaking as long as Dr. Lockridge did. His sermon, Amen, was actually an hour and nine minutes long. Uh, So I'll do my best to stay within bounds. But I have to tell you, this poem, as I begin to read it, I have to resist greatly the, the urge to affect a bit of a southern accent. And as, as I, I, I read this, the, the, the inner black preacher wants to come out of me. So I, I will do my best to bring this some justice. The poem is called My King. My King was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews, and that's a racial king. He's the king of Israel, and that's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. My king is the only one whom there are no means of measure and that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He is enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impartially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's imperially powerful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of salvation. He stands alone in himself. He is august. He is unique. He's unparalleled, he's unprecedented, he's supreme, he's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature, he's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem of higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. Well, my king is the king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness, the gateway of glory, the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors, the prince of peace. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That is my king. That's my king. His office is manifold, his promise is sure, his light is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light.
I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him. They've but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave could not hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he who had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There is nobody before him, and there's no one after him. You can't impeach him. He's not going to resign. That's my king. Thine is the power, the kingdom, and the power and the glory. Well, all the power belongs to my king. Around here, we'll be talking about black power, about white power, about green power, but it's God's power. Thine is the power. Oh, yeah, and the glory. We try to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And how long is that? How long is that? And ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all the forevers, then amen. Does that fire you up? Who's your king? Because that's my king. That's a beginning of understanding of who he is and what he's done. We sang a song just now, Oh, Come to the Altar. And it's just like everything in me is screaming to run to the altar to come before the king of kings. Do you feel that? Is he your king? He's the king of all things. And we can't even begin to describe him. What is it that changes for us from who our king is to how we live out our lives? God is working on my heart to expect more. I want... I want more in me. I expect more from my fa- in my family. I expect more in my church. And I have a dangerously honest question for you. Do we honestly and actually expect God to intervene in our everyday lives? Or only when we specifically invite Him in? Because I have to tell you in my own experience... As a pastor here at Temple, there have been Sundays where I show up here and I honestly, and I, Lord, forgive me. As a shepherd of this church, Lord, I don't expect you to do anything. And that's in me. That's no reflection of him. I have to tell you this morning, I have an expectation. I have an expectation that God is alive and that Jesus is my king and he is your king, but he has to be your king. I want to give you opportunity this morning, if he is not your king, to understand what that means. Where in our lives do we find proof that God is up to anything? Well, I look to my scriptures. And in there, We see the stories. We see the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it is all the proof we need. 
we realize that he is our Savior. Paul, the apostle, the one of the followers of Jesus, the one who originally was named Saul and was killing Christians, was so transformed that he became one of the most prolific and most successful that we can tell evangelists of his day, where God used him to start churches all across the Mediterranean. What would change a man from being a murderer to putting his life on the line for the very man he was chasing down. In his book in Philippians, one of the letters to the multiple churches that he wrote to, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, this is what he says. Indeed, I count everything as lost, but because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. How do we set aside everything? What would motivate this man to disregard all the things of this world as rubbish, as filthy rags, as some translations put it, as garbage? All the things of this world are just filthy rags, but to gain Christ. What motivates him? What changes his heart in that way? Well, it's honestly, it's what we need to expect. It is grace. God has granted us grace. Jesus offers forgiveness, and that necessitates grace. Jesus offers restoration and healing, and that requires grace. Jesus brings new life where once there was only death. Grace. Paul chases this grace. And this is a man who was highly educated. He was educated at the best levels. He was a man so devoutly religious, he was willing to take the life of another because they disagreed with the religion of his day. He was defending what he understood. And yet, now, he surrenders all that. Surrenders it all and gives it away in order to gain Christ, Jesus. There's new life. There's a restoration, there's a healing, there's a forgiveness that comes at the cross where Jesus willingly laid down his life to purchase our freedom from sin. I hope this isn't news to you, but if it is news to you, you are forgiven. You are worth it, you are worthwhile. God loves you desperately more than we can begin to understand. And he desires to be in relationship with you. He wants you to be his child. If you've never given your heart to him, Open your heart, listen today, and hear his word, how he wants to treat you. He wants to invite you into a relationship of love and of care, and that you are never, ever, ever, forever alone again. Amen. God loves you. For those of you who do know him, are you struggling with sin on any level? Jesus gives forgiveness and the strength to endure. Are you facing a challenge? Are there trials that Jesus needs to offer you and give you protection and grace? Are there things that you need to bring to him because he has the answer? Are there things that you can surrender in your life and allow him to run all of the things that we need to do and live in his grace? Jesus brings that. He brings healing. The question remains, do you know him? Jesus is the great redeemer. He's our king. Our text today exemplifies how we need to live out the Jesus mission here in our world. 
Nehemiah. I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Nehemiah where we will be uh, reading in a few moments. Nehemiah had just gone through the ringer with his leadership. In fact, it wasn't just the leadership. It was the priesthood. He had gone through having to correct the culture that they had developed there as they were trying to rebuild. And the problem was it wasn't just that there were bad things happening. It was bad things happening within the camp. It was brother against brother and sister against sister. And the, the worst of it was that the testimony of Jesus was being brutalized in the area around them. The testimony of God who was bringing them back from captivity, reestablishing the promised land, and they were murdering it from within. Because those other kings, those other regions, those other people were looking at how they treated one another, and they were saying, if that's the way they are, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going with this God. This God sounds kind of cool and doesn't require a lot of me. They were brutalizing the testimony of the Lord in the nations around them. Nehemiah is actually exacting a promise He's lev and levying a curse on the leadership. And he's saying to them, you know, you need to follow through on a promise. Or if not, God's going to disown you. He's going to let you go. In fact, that was what that whole last week, that whole shaking out of the robes. It's a pretty dramatic way for, for Nehemiah to let the leadership know that if you're, if you're nothing more than the dust and the stuff I need to get off of my robe, then that's all you're ever going to be. And God wants so much more. God wants so much more intimacy. He wants so much more life. He wants them to enjoy the promise. And Nehemiah is bringing them back to that call. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 to 19, is where we're going to be reading. I invite you to stand with me as we read. If you need to look this up, you have a hard copy in, in the book. Uh, if you have it on your phone or your device or Google, uh, you can look up Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, all my, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, and besides those, who, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and a six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people." You may be seated. Now we're going to look through as we, we see in this passage, there's, there's two main challenges or observations. And I do feel them they are challenges that come out of the text. And we're going to move as we figure out how we move through our times. Nehemiah was using these things to navigate his time. We need to figure out how we're going to navigate our times. And I think these two principles follow through. 
Let's dive in and work through the text, and then I'll give you what those two principles are. Verse 14, he starts off with this phrase, moreover. It's kind of like as you, whenever you see therefore. What's, what's the little thing you say when you see the therefore in, the, in Scripture? You see, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay, it's kind of a quick way to remember that something came before, previous to that. It's kind of silly, but this is actually similar to that, only moreover is means that there's more to add to it. I'm building on what was there. That was good. That was great. Now here's the next step. And Nehemiah does this twice. He's building on that promise, that pulling out from the, the leadership and the people of their faithfulness to God, and he's giving them something more. Moreover, it's, it's that continuation. Now, you have to remember, this is more a narrative of his thoughts right now. It's like there's a narrator. You see the scene of the city. He's just had the meeting with the people, and, and it's like the narrator for the movie comes on the scene and describes what is about to happen and gives you. That's kind of the mood of what you have. So you also get the idea that this is actually something that has already happened, and he's recording it. As the passage continues, you see where it says, I was appointed to be their governor. There's an authority in that. Nehemiah comes out of being in a position of authority, the cupbearer to the king. He's essentially number two in the kingdom. And he has a lot of influence. And as we will see, a lot of money. He's been given authority. But that authority only comes through the authority that's been, from the authority that's been given. It comes from a higher source. And Nehemiah is acting on behalf of that to express that authority and to bring them to a certain place. And in Nehemiah's case, he's acting in two authorities. The one is he's acting on behalf of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, has sent him there on a mission. You have a task to do, get it done. How much do you need? What do you need to have make, to have make it happen? Let's get this done. And then he has a better and greater authority in the Lord. And he's acting on behalf of both of those authorities, but he's acting strongly. As the passage continues, it says 12 years. Uh, this is a significant time frame. There's a large clue that, that in, in that it says 12 years, so he's looking back on the 12 years. So again, he's, he's rehearsing in his mind and as the narrative that this is all in the past. It's already happened. And here's a lesson we can learn from it. He's looking back. He's remembering the specific challenge. The passage there in verse 14 continues, I nor my brothers. This is actually family. He's not making the whole um, godly type brotherhood, sisterhood of faith. This is actually, this is my sibling who's working with me. So he's got his brother is his right-hand man, literally and actually. They're working together so that he knows when I say something, my brother will act the exact same way and act it out. He's been empowered to do this. My, neither my brother nor I. So family is a big deal here. It's a ministry to the people of the family. The passage goes on and talks about the food allowance. He's the governor. How else is he going to get fed? Like, now think, about, think this through. This, this is not just a thing from Scripture, from the history. How do we do this now? We pay taxes. You know, you, you pay property tax. You pay income tax. And where does that go? Hopefully where it's supposed to. And it goes to pay 
the people who are governing us. That's where they derive their salary from. Well, Nehemiah has the exact same system. He is actually in a place to collect that from the people. And, and because they don't actually have a lot of money, the coin, those shekels that they talk about there, would only add up to about $9,000. It's not a lot. But they couldn't handle it. It was too much for them. So how they would pay this to their governor was in food, was in all of the things that they would harvest. It was in the, the goods that they would produce, and they would turn that over. And here's Nehemiah saying, neither I nor my brothers are collecting that allowance. In verse 15, he moves on, and he says this. He says, former governors... So he's, again, referring back to history. Well, what did they do? The former governors. This is a retelling and a little bit of a reminder of the corruption and the abuse that had been there. The leadership had been wicked. They had been influenced the wrong way, and that had then redirected the people's culture. Well, what ways, do, you know, Pastor Dan, that's nice, that's great. Uh, culture tends to do that. It tends to weave and ebb and flow. But if the leadership is at its core wrong, then that ebb and flow will only move worse. What did they do? Well, they were accused of usury, charging interest that was exorbitant, and that there's no way they were able to, f- to pay that off. It wasn't, wasn't going to happen. And it led to slavery. There was corruption. They were using their influence in ways that was inappropriate. They had influence peddling, where they would say, hey, well, if you do this, I'll do that. And it had nothing to do with serving the people. It had everything to do with making him richer and making me richer or giving me more influence. This is not what our leadership should be doing. And Nehemiah is challenging this. He's stating it right out for us. Taking of bribes. Profiteering. There's actually a case that we'll see in a moment of actual profiteering. He describes it. This is not the kind of leadership that God required of them. Nor did it speak well to the nations around them. And that was part of Nehemiah's issue. Their testimony was being brutalized. God's witness to the nations was being hammered hard and besmirched and mucked over because of their behavior. Verse 16. They persevered in the work. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. Well, the work on the wall is the mission. This is why they were there. Nehemiah had been sent and had, remember, he was sad in the face of the king. And, and that was that was dangerous thing to do. What's his job? He's the cupbearer. If the cupbearer, the last line of defense for the king, the one who is going to be tasting the wine and tasting the food for poison, if he comes in front of the king as looking sad, everyone around here better look suspicious. <laughs> Something could be going on, and the king is not going to trust that man. And yet, he had lived such a life that when he came in the presence of the king, Artaxerxes says, What's so, why so sad? And then he unburdens his heart, and he has this wonderful lightning prayer that goes up because he has no time to get on his knees. He has no time to search scriptures for what God would want him to say. He has no time to seek counsel. He just has to respond right then because the king is asking him a direct question in front of everybody. And a lightning prayer goes up, God, give me wisdom. <laughs> We all can do those. That's a great tool in your tool belt as as a faithful believer. Those lightning prayers, God answers those. He acts mightily in those lightning prayers. 
They persevered in the work, in their task that was at hand. They brought it to the people as their mission. They were to rebuild the wall. Ezra was charged with rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah was charged to rebuilding the wall, which essentially means rebuilding their national identity. They have nothing for protection. They are always going to be at risk if they don't have a wall. And Nehemiah is there on mission from the king and the king of kings to rebuild the wall and not just the wall, but rebuild the people. And he's staying on task with that. And how does he do that? It says, it goes on. They progress with the work. He acquired no land. Well, why, does he, why, why do they care about that? They acquired no land. Well, this is going back to what the, the former governors, the profiteering. It's where they would go and they would buy off the debt of people. So I'll give you 30 cents on the dollar for, for, that, for that property. And then we'll, we'll just sort of make that debt go away. 30 cents on the dollar sounds like a pretty raw deal when that's your inheritance from God. The people were never to give that up. In fact, even as they traded and they looked after one another, God had given them the seven years of renewal. So every seven years, those debts were to be wiped out they were, and people were to be reinstated into their inheritance. And they're totally disregarding that. They acquired no land. This is actually a big statement. He's saying, I'm not going to take advantage of my people and live off of their backs and cause them to be destitute and cause them to become slaves and then again reinforce to my neighbors how bad God really is because I am miserable. He's not going to do that. He acquired, he, it's just a really quick statement, acquired no land. <laughs> it means a lot. This is the promised land. They're not going to take that from one another. Verse 17, you see it again, right at the beginning of verse 17. Moreover, he's building. The first one there is, this is all about God. This is all about how he is needing to be witnessed. Now, they need to share his name. They need to reflect in their character and how they treated one another and how they treated their neighbors, how they're going to look after things. And now we see, moreover, he's going to build on that. He's going to take the next steps. It says, moreover, there were at my table 150 men. Okay, how many of you live in a household of, say, four or five? Four or five, maybe two. Okay, four or five. Okay, we have four mouths to feed in our house on a regular basis. <laughs> and, and it's like, okay, okay. I don't know about you, but feeding four people every single day. I know from my wife, she's a amazing servant of our family and she says i don't know what to cook again <laughs> i don't blame her because i'm not good at it she doesn't want to eat my food <laughs> it's sadly true 150 men that's a big table <laughs> that's a lot of food 150 men it speaks to the size of the court that nehemiah kept this wasn't extravagant for the day either. He's a governor. He's an official of the court. He represents the king. He should have some sort of regal setup for him. It should be pretty snazzy. It should be pretty impressive when someone comes in to see. 150 men at the court is actually kind of small. When he came out of Artaxerxes' court, there were thousands servants. And that was just to serve the guests. 
So this 150 is, is a, a pretty big scaling down, but wow, for the average person, 150 people to feed every day? How many here want to invite 150 people into your home to sit down and eat every day? <laughs> I think that would be pretty brutal. You, you, man, God would be blessing you in a certain specific way for that. 150, it speaks of, of his faithfulness. And besides those, it continues, 150 men, uh, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now remember, why is this significant? How did Nehemiah get there? He came from the capital and traveled all the way around to Jerusalem. Because if you go straight in the line, you go across the desert. And aside from being a desert, it's dangerous. There's marauders, there's bandits, which is why he came with a crew of soldiers, a cavalry he came with the army, which is not just protection. It's also a symbol to everyone he's going to meet. I come on behalf of the king. So when he lands at someone's region, another governor, to stay the night, it's not just Nehemiah needing dinner. <laughs> it's all his soldiers. It's all his court guys, his brothers that he brought along with him. It's all those who had traveled with them. Are, they're expected to look after them. Hospitality is a big deal. And by the way, it's not just the people. What about all the camels, the donkeys, the, the horses, whatever else came along? with? They all need food. They all need water. This is a major expense. And yet, here he is, Nehemiah, saying, we look after them every day. 150 men plus. This is a big expense. As it goes on, verse 18 and this is, this is interesting because at my expense. I have in my notes here, it actually says, back up the truck. <laughs> you're feeding all these people and you're not taking the, the governor's wage? You're not taking what you rightly should? And maybe Seriously, you're doing this on your own? How rich is this guy? <laughs> like, think about that. 150 people every day. It already gave, we read, it gave the, a, slight, a, a slight small fraction of the menu every day. And he's doing this at his own expense. Now, I want to say something really cool here. It was not because Nehemiah was wealthy, which he was obscenely wealthy. It's because God provided that wealth for him while he was the cupbearer of the king. God was planning this well in advance before Nehemiah even had that urging and that ache where he spent days in mourning over the fallenness of his, his home city. God was already preparing the way. Nehemiah was bankrolling. <laughs> He's putting the money away because God knows you're going to need this later. <laughs> you're going to need to feed these guys. I, I'm looking after you. You're not just being wealthy for a reason it's because, you know, you're cool. <laughs> It's not your good looks and your charm. It's because I have a plan, and I'm going to see it work out. Nehemiah is wealthy, and now he's able to sustain the court, not on the backs of the people, but on the, the riches that God has given him. And God has put him in that position to, again, show how the leadership can be different. Because the leadership before is grasping. They're grabbing. They're cheating. They're corrupt. They're bringing things in that aren't theirs. They're, they're doing things so that their servants are then replicating what they see their bosses doing. And they're pulling and they're grabbing. They're taking their cut off the top. And then they pass it on. And Nehemiah is just cutting all of that out. There's none of that happening now. He's just footing the bill because of God's provision, God's plan. 
for this mission. God will provide through the mission. As it continues on, you see the shopping list, uh, and it is no small amount. And I, I would ask you the question, is he bragging because of this? And, and the answer comes from the last part of verse 18, if he's bragging or not. Uh, we see the shopping list here. We see um, the, the ox, the six choice sheep, the birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of a wine in abundance. There's a lot. His motivation is to serve and to build a future. There's a main, he's maintaining the mission. He's accomplishing what God has set before him. He's putting other ahead of his personal interests and at great expense. Now, today's, today our, our culture says, okay, if you're a rich man, then let's, what's, what's the ballpark on your salary? What do you bring in a year? Warren Buffett, $9.6 billion he's supposed to be worth. Uh, Mr. Microsoft, What's he worth? He's like the second richest man in the world right now. Over $50 billion of combined assets. That's how we measure wealth. In their day, they would measure wealth on how do you provide for others? What's it cost? What, 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 how, how grand is your lifestyle? Well, we kind of still do that one too. But they actually list out. So that's why we see a listing here, a shopping list of an ox every day, of six sheep every day, of, of numerous birds and fowl, like, like chickens. <laughs> all of these things, they add up. and They show how wealthy this dude is. And he's providing all of that based on God's provision for him. Now we see in verse 19, it's again, it's one of those lightning prayers. It goes up pretty quick. It's one line. And he says, remember my good, oh my God, that all that, I have done, all that I have done for this people. He's putting it out there. Um, this is one of five prayers that Nehemiah, through the book, lifts up. One of them is the lightning prayer at the very early on when he's in front of the king. But this is another one, and, it, and this is repeated again several times. Now, there's several different uh, commentators and some theologians who think, well, that's kind of works-oriented, isn't it? Uh, you know, he's saying, God, remember what I've done. You know, I'm worthy of this. That's not actually what he's saying. Because it's a Middle Eastern culture. This is not Western culture. And he's appealing to a judge when he says, my, oh my God. He's appealing to the judge, the authority. And as he does that, he's actually coming to the judge demanding justice. He's coming to the judge kind of in the posture of someone who has been wronged. He's not coming to the judge like our Western culture tends to feed. You know, say we actually had to enshrine it into our laws as innocent until proven guilty <laughs> because we assume someone's guilty because they got caught. Why would they be there if they weren't? It's kind of an assumption that we have, even though the reality is they are innocent until proven guilty. Nehemiah, in a prayer like this, is actually saying, God, your people have been wronged. Your name has been wronged. Remember what I'm doing to make your name right. He's holding God up to say, you got this, and I want to be a part of it. That prayer is a different prayer. It's not self-centered. And you see a little phrase in there, it says, oh my God. Well, our culture says that very differently, don't we? <laughs> it's actually uh, very derogatory to God. It's profane. It's evil. It's not the way we should be addressing the living God. He's not saying it in that manner. He, there could even be a comma after the O. 
I looked up. I wanted to see, okay, this is a pretty significant word, and we're, we're told not to take the Lord's name in vain, and this is one way that we do it. Uh, and I, so I looked it up in the Bible. I get on my computer, and I'm typing out, and I ask my computer program, I say, okay, how many times is my God used in Bible total? And it spits out in an instant all the answers and every reference. 155 times in Scripture, we see where my God has been used in Scripture. And the interesting thing about it, as I perused down through the list, I noticed a, a singular pattern in all of them. Is that all of them are a personal connection to God in relationship. That's significant. There's a personal, even in the Old Testament, it's a personal relationship. It's, it's face to face. It's, it's like heart to heart. It's like, God, you're there. I desire you. I need more of you. And when Nehemiah says that, that's what he's, de de he's declaring. I need more of you, God. It's a personal relationship that needs fulfillment. It's desire for a savior. It's desire for a redeemer. It's desire for a rescuer and authority and a powerful ally. <clears throat> 155 times, my God, and all of them are a personal connection. So here's our two points for today. We've walked through the text. We put, picked on a few words here and there, but the two points that I came out of, uh, number one is there's a love and a proper fear of God. It's actually about the people, and not about the people, it's about the things of God. He wants to defend God. The people have created this horrible cycle of abusing one another, and then that testimony of God is ruined. And he wants to defend that. He wants to address that and change that. He wants to bring about justice. There's two parts to justice. There's probably more than that. The two parts that I see is one is recognizing it, seeing what's going on. And the second part of justice is acting on it and making it different. It's not true justice just to see that that is wrong. It's not true justice for me to think that 6,000 human beings are trafficked on the highway right behind our building every year. Because this is the, the major corridor in Canada for human trafficking. It's not enough for me to say that's wrong. I recognize that. I have to take action on it. Justice demands action. How do we serve? What difference do we make? Do we love one another? Do we make changes? And then we maybe buy into the law. Well, I'm nothing. I can't do anything. I can't really make a change. That's 6,000 people. I don't know. How do I get involved? I don't know where that happens. I'm not part of that. I, and I justify every single reason why I don't have to do anything. But the actions that I can do are to love the people and my neighbors around me. The young woman who lives across the street, who needs someone to say, hey, you're worth it. We need someone to help her with her groceries so that she's not lured into something else. Or the man who's taking advantage of his girlfriend, of having someone come alongside him and say, you know, that's not how a man behaves. I'm willing to be there with you through this. Let's figure this out together. That, that's action. That stops human trafficking. We've changed the character of someone. You and I can do that. It's very cool. Those small little things matter. They're massive. They're not just little. They're massive. They change things. Justice can happen by those little things we do. And we need to do them on behalf of God. We bring people to Jesus. Is he your king? How do we love and fear God in our living every day? Well, it's doing those little things. It's living with integrity and, and living out the ethics we say we believe. 
and not living for the praise of men. The second thing, we do it out of concern for the people. The first and foremost is a concern for God. The second one is we do it out of a concern for the people, to actually love them. Do I love them? Because my king loves me. Do I love his people? You notice how I said that. Do I love his people? I didn't ask you. Oh, wait, let me ask you. (laughs) Do you love his people? Where are you going to serve? It starts with the person who lives in your home, and then it continues to the person who lives next to your home. It then continues to the person you work next to at work. It continues to the people you play with. It continues to the people you sing with. It continues to the church family that you have here. That concern for the people. Nehemiah refused to live on the backs of the people, even though he was governor. He refused that. He refused to be corrupt. He refused to do the things that he could get away with, honestly. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I love these people. These are God's people. We need to build them up. We need to see them restored. We need them to see a rescuer. And Nehemiah steps into that role as a strong leader, as a rescuer for the people, as someone they could depend on. How do you and I serve? Do we point people to the cross? Do we point people to my king? Do we point people to your king? Do we put others before us? The title for today's message is Serving Others and Stepping Aside from the Things that We Could Just Take, because they're ours. But setting aside those things to serve others is hard, and that's where you and I get to step up and follow Nehemiah's example and serve the king. I want to pray with you. This has been a hard challenge, and I have to tell you, I've been blessed because I, I'm not the lead pastor who has to bring the, the, the message week after week after week. I've had a month to, to God to be hammering this one into me. Am I living this out? Am I, am I believing this? Am I praying through this? So if this has been a hammer, it's God's hammer. And I trust that he will continue to bless you and lead you and teach you through it because he's taught me a lot. Let's pray. Most high God, we lift you up. We thank you again, Lord, for your leading, your guiding. You have put us in a position of, of service. You've put us in a position where this structure that we meet in becomes a tool for the community around us. Lord, help us to take what's in our hand to move out to serve and love the community around us. Lord, that we would be a great reflection of your, your name, that we would be a huge testimony, that people would see the difference in, in us because of you, that we would give you the glory, God. We give you praise that we are able to stand here freely to say Jesus is Lord. Lord, and in our hearts, we ask that you strengthen that in us, that we believe that, that we see you in action. We ask you to guide us, to lead us, to speak to us, to correct us, to, to bless us. We thank you for the opportunity to share in your word and and in the fellowship of one another and to sing your praises. Lord, you inhabit the praises of your people. You're here with us now. We give you praise. Thank you, Lord God, for today. And we pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Together as family, we say, Amen. amen.